This is the audio podcast. It's episode 104, Winter Time Notation, recorded on the 18th of February 2014. That was Scott Hewitt. I am Samuel Freeman. We also have Adam Yanch here. This is indeed show 104 of the audio podcast. Indeed it is. And remember, um, all listeners out there, uh, you can get in contact with the audio podcast in a number of ways. We've got a Twitter, that's at the audio podcast. Uh, we're on Facebook. Uh, facebook.com forward slash the audio podcast yeah. email show at the uk. and don't forget you can follow along with what we're doing because we run off the notes that are on the website so um, the audio uk forward slash show forward slash 104 for this show's notes and interesting news amazing news we have a special guest indeed we do the, the return of the special guests is upon us, and we have our first special guest of this season. You may have suspected it could have been somebody involved with headphones. Or maybe somebody <laughs> complaining about the never-ending references to a lack of updates of particular doors. But no, we're returning to a different audio podcast favorite topic. This week, it's Notation, and our guest is Daniel Spreedry from Steinberg. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. It, it's a pleasure. So we... we, um, we we love talking about computer-based notation. Um, we're, Steinberg kind of keep rumoring that they have some sort of interest in that space, but we, you know, we don't really, we haven't really heard anything about what it is. But my my first question to you would be, why do we need another notation package? Yes, why indeed. Well, I think the um, the reason that we're building one is that um, some of the existing tools, obviously, there's some very mature tools, very full-featured tools out there, the Finales and Sibelius of this world, and there's some free ones that are very good, and so on. So, why on earth would we spend all this time and energy making a new one? Well, the answer is that we think that, uh, in particular, with regard to, um, well, there's two there's two main things. The main, the first main thing is. Notation software is traditionally not a very good composing environment. So it's very, very good if you know what you've already want to say and you've maybe worked it out at the piano in advance. So you can kind of enter the music that you already know how it goes very straightforwardly. Um, you then sort of tend to run into some problems when um, you want to change your mind. You want to perform the kinds of edits that are very natural to make in a sequence or a door where you can use the pencil tool to chop stuff up and you can scale things and drag them around and so on. And that kind of editing is is very difficult in, in scoring programs uh, as a rule. So it turns out that you, know, you can't really then compose into a scoring program the way you can compose into a door. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that actually, uh, despite the fact that, the, uh, that there are some you know, very mature programs out there, it's surprising just sort of how still some quite basic aspects of, uh, of music engraving um, aren't really handled terribly well, or at least not terribly automatically by those programs, which means that if, you, if you're actually going to get a really good result that you could be you know, proud of and let's say is, is sort of approaching publication quality, you still have to spend quite a lot of time tweaking things, and you actually have to know what to tweak and how to tweak them uh, and what the correct, in inverted commas, result should be. Um, and so we think there's, there's still a lot more that can be done um, with scoring software to automate um, those kinds of processes. And I know automation is one of those words that, particularly with scoring software, kind of is very frightening to people. So, oh, no, but I want to be able to put this thing just here, and I don't want the program to fight with me, and so on. Um, I totally agree. But I think at the same time, automation is a good thing um, if it would do what you would have done anyway yourself. You know, where, where it's bad is if it does something that you disagree with. So the key for us, then, is to come up with a, an automatic engraving system that is that is really, really good, really follows 
all of the traditions and conventions of, of music engraving and does a really solid job of that and at the same time provides um, an environment for working in that is, is a bit more freeing and a bit more flexible than the, uh, than the existing applications that are already available. Excellent stuff. So it, I'm saying you, you basically addressed all of the uh, things that I dislike about all of the things that already exist actually in, in terms of, in terms <coughs> of the kind of naturality of, of the environment. Do you see so? So, is your intention to kind of go with something which is going to be have more kind of formative, kind of real-time interaction feel? Maybe using kind of like a keyboard, or do you, or do you see it being more kind of a, more of a kind of computer-based sort of programming environment? Say something like LilyPond, like LilyPond would offer. I mean, I think LilyPond is is a really interesting project because obviously its its goal is to is to produce fully automatic, you know, beautifully engraved music, and and it does. I think it probably does do the best job of that for at least for conventional music in what you might call common music notation. Um, and I think it does a really good job of that. But I think again, it sort of solves one half of the problem to the extent that it does. But it's it's not a very good environment for composing in because of course you have to write your input file in advance and run it through the uh, run it through the compiler and see how it goes. And of course there are some graphical tools that that make that workflow um, a little bit sort of easier to get started with. I think obviously like like anything. You know, you can probably learn to write Lilyput input files as naturally as you can input music into Finale and Sibelius once you've been doing it for a while, even though you're kind of performing slightly more kind of mental gymnastics to, to really kind of translate what you want to see into the, into the right input codes. Um, but I think, you know, even, even Lilypond supporters would agree that it's not a great environment for composing music. It's a typesetting environment. So, so yeah, we, we, are, we are looking at um, ways of making the input and editing um, still using the traditional input methods of you know a mouse, a keyboard, uh, a MIDI keyboard, and so on, um, as natural as we can, and and to really try to to make the environment um, quite forgiving in terms of, you know, or you want to put in the pitches and put in the rhythms later, or you want to do the other way around, or you want to kind of change stuff around in, in, in fairly kind of uh, sophisticated ways. We kind of want to provide tools that will that will do that. Um, so not kind of inventing anything magical like inputting music via waving your hands at your webcam or, or even possibly less fanciful like you know, using, a, using a stylus or something to, to write it in on a graphics tablet or a touchscreen or something, although that's very cool and there are some things out there doing that and we'd like to, we'd like to work with them. But we're really, you know, we, we kind of optimized for, uh, to, to try and come up with things optimized for efficiency. So not only is it a flexible thing but also something that you can learn because it's a consistent environment so that, you know, in the end, you're actually inputting music into the program, kind of like playing an instrument, you know, so in the end, once you're, once you're familiar with, with the ways that it works, uh, inputting music can, can feel like you're, you know, playing, playing a piano or whatever it might be. Um, I noticed on your blog you mentioned um, in the comments, I think, to a post you made last November, perhaps, um, that there was going to be an embedded Lua interpreter within the system to um, give an API to anything you can do anything you can do with the interface you'll be able to do through scripting which I suppose I mean is that is that something that's still in there and if so that's the plan yeah yep. <laughs> yeah so I mean the, the, the point of having the um, obviously we, we saw you know most of us all of us working on this new project also worked on Sibelius in the past and we saw what value um, the manuscript language which is you know kind of an interesting little embedded language based on um, something called Syncin, which was uh, created by one of the original Sibelius for Windows programmers. It's a slightly idiosyncratic language. Um, and it, Manuscript itself, which was built on top of that interpreter, had 
a somewhat incomplete API in terms of the things that it would actually let you do based on you know the functionality that Sibelius as a whole provided. But it was still amazing to see what people could do with with that sort of fairly you know rudimentary language in terms of the actual language features and, and sort of slightly incomplete musical API. So we really want to make it possible for folks using our new application to to go beyond that. So firstly, use a real language like Lua, which is obviously, you know, very well suited for embedding in, in large-scale applications. Um, and secondly, to try and provide a more complete API so that if, if folks can kind of fathom a thing they might want to do, there should be some way of achieving it with the with the Lua interface. So, I mean, it, we, we anticipate that it should be fully featured enough that if you, for example, wanted to write, you know, a file importer to import music from another program or something, in theory, you know, the API should be rich enough to, to allow that kind of thing. And if you want to do, you know, algorithmic, thing be what sits with the music, you know, to transform the music in various ways. Again, it should be fully featured enough to do that. Uh, there are some there are some sort of interesting questions about how we're actually going to do things like present allow the user to present a UI, how we can let them design the UI these plugins are going to show and this kind of thing. Uh, but definitely the, the plan is to is to go deep on the on the API uh, because, you know, as I say, even with a fairly patchy API, we've seen the benefits that that users can bring, and you know I think it's inevitable that we're we're on this. This is a multi-year project, and even when the first version comes out, there's going to be no doubt a bunch of stuff that it doesn't do that folks are going to wish it did, and obviously we'll carry on developing it past that first release. But with with a decent plugin API in at the, at the ground floor, hopefully there might be some things that you know the user community can at least come up with interim ways of achieving things that might eventually become built-in features. And, uh, it, you know, it could be it could be a, a very important way that users can, you know, both customize the environment and also, um, you know, add value to the product as a whole. That's, that, that's really interesting. It strikes me, the thing that's always annoyed me the most about other environments is the way they've never made the kind of conceptual observation that the, the notes and pictures exist as data which are being graphically represented, but being able to manipulate the data and then get a different graphical representation is a really is a really powerful way to work. And it sounds that's like the kind of thing you're mentioning when you when you talk about these ideas of plugins and things. Are these going to be um, I, I, are you thinking here these are going to be things that will be subsumed into the environment eventually, or is your anticipation that there be some sort of um, external kind of app store where people will be able to kind of make and sell these kind of plugin and devices to go in on top of the, the core software itself? Probably both, I imagine. I mean, I think that it will probably make sense for us to, you know, ship a bunch of scripts that do interesting things with the program. Again, it's it's sort of a good way of illustrating to folks who might be interested in digging in, you know, well, what can you do and, and how do you do it? You know, it's obviously learning by example is always very important. And, yeah, I think that having a, having a means of easily adding um, further script plugins to the program by kind of downloading them and browsing for them and so on, I think will be will be very important as well. Um, whether we have that latter thing in the very first version, who knows? But um, but I think certainly, if we're successful in kind of building an ecosystem around around the product, then um, you know it would be natural for users to want to kind of be able to pull those things into the program, uh, you know, as easily as possible. It's a bit of a pain, isn't it? Downloading like a zip file from this website and unzipping it and finding the right folder to put it in, and it's probably in some hidden location and all that jazz. So yeah, I think I think really trying to make the whole experience as friction-free for the user as we can is, is going to be key. So is it going to be a? Are you anticipating it's going to be some sort of standalone? Kind of application, or is this something that's going to kind of be plugged into Cubasis on Uendo, or? 
it's going to be a standalone application. I think that um, you know, obviously, in the in the very long term, I would hope that the technology that we're developing, sort of the musical brain, that's at the heart of the application, we've kind of got one eye on the fact that it would be nice if it could be really closely integrated with with Cubase and Uendo in the future. Um, so and possibly even you know to the, to the extent that the the scoring features that are in Cubase today could be potentially replaced by some of the technology that we're working on, because uh, I think it makes sense for Steinberg to have kind of one one notation engine in the end to rule them all. Um, but it's going to be a long way off because in fact, you know, although it's it's really kind of been a labour of love, I think, for some of the Cubase developers over the years, and one one chap in particular who's been working on it for a very long time. The, the notation features in Cubase are actually really deep and sophisticated. It can do a great deal of stuff. I think it's probably people maybe don't start there if that's where they, if they're actually working on a scoring project. They you know they probably won't wouldn't think of Cubase first if that was you know what they were going to do. But actually, it can do some really quite sophisticated notation in there. Um, and so I think the uh, the challenge for us, if we're going to kind of eventually replace that with with what we're building, is that our thing's got to be pretty sophisticated before it can fit in. But we've kind of got one eye on it, so uh, we're sort of thinking about how, obviously, in, in Cubase, the notation is derived from the MIDI and you know the quantization that happens and also the display quantization that happens that can be altered after the facts and so on. So we're trying to kind of make the the underlying foundations of, of the way that our program thinks about notation similar, so that there's at least some conceptual similarity. Exactly how we do the technological integration at a later date, ooh, don't know. But uh, but at least kind of making it making it think in, in a similar way, I think, is is a good start. Yeah. So, well, I, I feel I feel it'd be wrong of me not, not not to ask a question that you probably you probably won't want to answer. But when when could we when when can we expect to see something to have a play with or? <laughs> You, you can expect it whenever you like, but that won't make any difference to when it actually appears. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's 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 kind of early days. We've been we've been uh, we joined Steinberg in November of 2012, and we spent the first few months really just kind of having a good brain dump and sort of try to capture the requirements that we that we feel. You know, what is it about this new project that could be interesting to people who are probably already using another scoring program? So the reality is that. I suspect that many of the people who will be looking at our new product when it comes out are going to be using something else already. So we, we really wanted to try and kind of understand the problem space. We spent a good, a good couple of months really just doing nothing but the 11 of us just sitting around in a circle and, and kind of making copious notes about, about a whole bunch of stuff. And through that process, we came up with, with what is essentially the kind of the vision for the program as a whole. Um, and then we started building it about a year ago. Um, and so we're, we're one year in. It's kind of hard to predict exactly where we are, I and mean, we've, we've made some really good progress, and I'm hoping actually to do another blog post or two in the, in the relatively near future that will kind of describe some of the uh, some of the things we've been working on since my last post in November, but, it, you know, we still have a long way to go, a long way to go, so I think rather than, um, you know, we're trying to kind of be as open as we can about the progress that we're making so that people who are interested can find out, and uh, and hopefully it kind of keeps us in people's minds that, oh yes, those guys at Steinberg are working on this thing and hopefully it's going to be pretty cool, you know, like them to be thinking that. Uh, but in terms of when it's actually going to be done, it's very hard to say. And what's that standard answer? It'll be done when it's done, something like that. I think that's maybe that's maybe what it is. 
<laughs> the um the most recent post was not on your blog was um advertising an opportunity for a new coder to join the team, someone. Yeah. Um that was in December. Has that post been filled or we are in the process now of, of, of doing so, yes, which is, is not going to come a moment too soon because there's a heck of a lot of code to write <laughs> and we could, do with, we could do with another pair of hands or two to, to help us do it. So, yeah, we're looking forward to, to growing the team a little bit and it's, it's obviously very, uh, it's very exciting for us that, that Steinberg's not only, you know, picked us up and transplanted us here and, and given us our own office and given us this opportunity, but they're also continuing to invest in our team um, and, you know, they're, they're really committed to this to this project and to making this product successful, which is, you know, it's, it's fantastic for us, very exciting. So, yeah, we're looking forward to, to one or two new faces joining the team in the near future. Cool. Well, and unless Adam, unless you have any question, I think that's. Uh, I, I don't want to take up any more of your time today than than, than we agreed to. Adam, do you have any questions? Or are you satisfied there? I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. Fantastic. <laughs> so, so finally, I'm saying, Daniel, could you? We've made reference to it. Um, if people are interested in in the project, is there any way that they could? Um, how how can they keep track of it? How can they stay up to date with what's going on? Yep, the, uh, the best way is probably my blog, which is called Making Notes, and you can find it at blog.steinberg.net. Um, as I say, there hasn't been a, a new post for a little while, but I've actually been working on some over the last few days. Uh, a lot of people emailed me last week and said, when are we going to get a new update? So I said, okay, I'll stop working on fonts and all the other nonsense and, uh, and write one. So it's at blog.steinberg.net. There'll be a new post there in the next few days. If folks want to get in touch with me directly, um, obviously there's a contact form on the blog, but I'm also on Twitter at dspreadbury, so uh, folks can, can tweet me and um, I normally... I normally remember to tweet back, so <laughs> so feel free to get in touch and share ideas and, and that kind of stuff. And we're obviously very interested in hearing what folks who, who might be interested in using our scoring program down the line, you know, things that maybe bother them about their current program or ideas they've got. We're, we're definitely open to all that stuff, so so don't be shy about getting in touch. Excellent stuff. Well, um, I'm 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 I am very excited to. Uh... To, to, to see what, what is going to come from the fruits of your labor here as somebody who has fallen out with every scoring environment you could think of at least once now. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm excited to try a new one. I'm not promising I won't fall out with that one as well, but I'm <laughs> no excited to try one. So that's great stuff. Well, thank you very much for your time, Daniel. It's been an abs absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're wanting to save the rest of the show or if you're wanting to bail, so if you want to bail, just feel free to hang up and disappear and we'll take no personal offense to that at all. <laughs> uh, thanks very much, Japs. It's nice to, nice to see you. And, uh, you know, feel free to ask me back later on if, uh, if, you'd, if you'd be interested to hear more. Ab absolutely so. I think the minute we see uh, in any sort of rumor of a release, we'll be chasing you straight up to find out. Great. Okay. A little bit more of an inside scoop on it. So. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Thanks, love. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Daniel. Cheers, Daniel. Bye. So there we go. That was uh, that was Daniel Steinberg of uh, Spreadbury of Steinberg joining us there for uh, the first of what should be a, a series of interviews. We've got a few more people lined up for the next couple of, over the next couple of months. So that's pretty cool. But as the interview comes to a close, we should move to the traditional audio podcast format, which takes us straight into the news. The news. Uh-oh. Uh so. so first of all, um, Console One has had a software up update. It has. This is the SoftTube hardware slash software system. Now, we made a complete mess of this last time we talked about it because we didn't have a clue how it was working or what it was trying to do. We were very confused. I have found a good question and answer article on the SoftView website which I've put in the comments to this item in the show notes. Which so, and, and we may have a, an expert on this, uh, this piece of hardware joining us soon. Excellent. Very good. Excellent. I look forward to that. So shall we just leave it at that or shall we like actually try and like 
say more correctly what this is and what it does? We had lots no, of questions. Let, let's just leave it there. It's, oh, it's available it. for okay. download, and the yep. update fixes critical issues. It's, I love that phrase, critical issues. <laughs> How about some new rumored hardware? Have you guys seen this story here that Korg are having a collaboration with ARP to re release a Odyssey? Oh, yeah, this is actually a hardware they, version. They, yeah, I think they're going to rebuild this. They, yeah, going to rebuild, reissue the synth. Wow. I, I want to stop there momentarily. Adam, what software do Korg make? iOS software. What software? Oh yeah, yeah I guess they, so. Yeah, yeah and make... Reason plugins, Reason yeah. extensions. Yeah. And there's. I, I take that um, MS20 clones, wasn't it, or something? The, like that. the MS20, which actually I I've played with on the i on the iPad, and it, I found it to be hugely confusing. And uh, I would probably recommend a different synth myself. But yeah, yeah. Uh, just because I was thinking, you know, Korg have done the MS20. They've done. They've re-released a lot of their old, um, like, softwares or hardwares of their old thing. What interests me here is that it's an ARP synth because, of course, Korg and ARP would have been competitors back in the 70s. Mm. Yeah. Because Korg made their own hardware synths. ARP did. Minimoog did. You know, all this kind of stuff. So yeah, this is. I'm kind of fascinated by this union of uh, of of the those two sides of the classic synth world. It mm. should be very interesting to see when it's uh, when it's released. Well, the official date that they've put on the Korg website is um is that it's scheduled for September this year. So yeah, we we, sh we shouldn't have too sh shouldn't have too long to go. We may even see like a. a you know what I mean? I'm saying you can imagine a, a kind of prototype turning up at the Mesa or something like that as well. Perhaps mm. even. And, you know, September, what's that? Seven months away. So they must be pretty well underway with this project. It can't be like, a, oh, we decided to do it yesterday and let's tell everyone and we've only got seven months to make it. I'm pretty yeah. sure that... Well, they, they have hired... Uh, David, David Friend has came on as a consultant to Korg who was one of the original founders of ARP and also one of the original developers of the Odyssey. So that's obviously going to give them a massive, you know, that's going to be a really big help because you can imagine he's probably turned up. There is an official collaboration going on. So, you know, I mean, there's probably no, there shouldn't be any need for kind of reverse engineering of things. There should be a, this is what this was and mm. these are the decisions that were made. Now, is it going to be a, a classic analog um, thing or is it going to be a, a virtual analog or is it going to be a mix um, they they haven't really remarked, but I suspect it's going to be I suspect it's going to be a digital a kind of digital emulation of the hardware because there, there's no way to make the analog hardware at a sensible price really because the problem is you just end up with you know thousands of bits of componentry inside it and most of that componentry is probably quite hard to find and quite bespoke anyway and it's much easier to emulate it inside. You know, inside software or you know, inside but circuitry. Then, you know, there have been a lot of actual full-on analog synths released recently. Maybe with digital uh, envelopes or LFOs or that kind of thing. But uh, oh, I don't know. I think it'd be interesting because I think the interest in this would be to make it as analog as possible, but without making it uh, unviable as a as a well, business project. That, that, that's very interesting you say that because I was thinking a little bit about the, the Odyssey. So the first thing is, if my memory serves me correctly, I'm, I'm quite into old hardware as I think people have gathered, but um, three, there were three versions of the Odyssey and there isn't a commitment as to which version of the Odyssey is actually being made. 
which version of it they're actually going to they're going to think of making. So that that's just one bit there. But the two main features of the Odyssey was first of all the fact that its tuning didn't wobble. The oscillators were it was actually stable. You could tune it and it did drift a little bit over time, but no, it wasn't like you had to retune it every time you turned it on. It was they were much more stable than that. And the other thing is it used pulse wave mod modulation synthesis, which obviously is something we do you know is used all over the place now. It was one of the kind of pioneering elements there which gave it its kind of thick, kind of big textural sounds came from the use of the pulse wave modulation rather than the use of simple oscillators. So the thing that made, the thing that interests me about the way that they're going to, about this idea of how do you emulate analog hardware kind of thing, is that this is actually a piece of analog hardware that doesn't actually suffer from the typical traits of analog hardware. You know what I mean? It's... It, it's not hardware. It was pretty stable. It didn't wobble around the place, and it didn't have. It didn't. It wasn't limited to thin, simple textures because of a, a set number of kind of you know eight saw wave oscillators. It had, but because it had pulse wave modulation, it could do more complex waveforms. The source materials to synthesize from. So and it was it, the. It was a monosynth, yeah. Yes, so I think the main late the later version may have been to, may have been dual. Duophonic. Duophonic, oh, okay. if I remember correctly, yeah. But all of the original Odysseys were pre-MIDI, though. So, well, yes, that that and that is going to be cool. A, you know, one with a MIDI port on the back, yeah, <laughs> or or a USB socket on it, which is much more likely. So it's not like that, yeah. I I I thought that was, yeah. I I think this is cool. I'm I'm really excited. I I really like these this kind of hardware. I think it's interesting to see the sounds that are coming from you know that come from them. I'm at, I'm at that time of the year where I spend a lot of my time with students emulating 909s, so it's it's kind of interesting how it's become th this is becoming really cool, you know, in in the kind of large space, and it's it's interesting how emulating sounds of the past is currently the thing to do as opposed to maybe this discovery of new sounds as perhaps mm -hmm. was more of a kind of an interest. A, um, a staggering om omission from this week's news, as um, soon as you've come to that, is that there has been some Roland releases in the past week, which we um, don't appear <laughs> to have in the news this week. But, you know, there's plenty of coverage of that around the internet. We can put those in next week, maybe, I'd say. Um, now, you said someone said there that uh, Korg does Reason rack extensions. Now, mm -hmm. someone else does, has just released a Reason rack extension, I do believe. Ooh. Yes, indeed. IOX AudioWare have a um, a a new maximizer rack extension. Sounds to be good. like a it's a limiter, basically. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> a, a complicated <laughs> limiter, perhaps. There you go. The I, I, IOX uh, AudioWare Titan 410X. Uh, more details online. There you go. I guess. Very easy. And uh, now I think it's probably time to go through every door that is currently on the market and figure out which one has been upgraded, has, has got an update. Cubasis. Woo! There is you go. that Cub as in as in iOS, iPad, yes. Cubasis? Yeah. Okay. So fine. Cubasis has has, a had, had, has had a maintenance update to 1.7.2, and uh, the update resolves many user-reported issues and is recommended. I couldn't find a detailed changelog, actually. Yeah, I got one. Oh, where did you it's find it? already <laughs> commented. It's already... Oh, excellent. I put it in a comment. It's, um, I got it on kvraudio.com. Cool. So um, one of the things they say is that the next update will be to 1.8, which will include automation, but that's not in this one. What they've added in this one, a bunch of stuff, fine. What we really want to know is what were the resolved problems. What was broken before that isn't That's right. Now. So... Um, there were, there, were, there were issues that are now fixed with using interrupt audio when doing a mix-down. 
which is sounds funny. pretty fundamental. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's fixed now. Good for them. Hey. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there's others. People can find it. The link is there. And uh, and can I just ask, is, has there been an upgrade to Logic this week? No. No. Ah. And ah. even even for, uh, even Avid have taken a week off from an update. How about that? Incredible. Even even Steinberg haven't updated Cubase. Oh, they okay. they've been cranking them out. Cranking them. We haven't had a, we haven't discussed a Reaper update in a while actually though, or an Ardor one. Oh, we haven't even talked about Reaper. When was the last time we actually properly talked about Reaper? If you wanted to know the last time we talked about Reaper, you could take a look at the show notes at the audiopodcast.co.uk slash well, that would do that. You could actually do slash tag slash Reaper, actually, and that would tell you the last time we talked about Reaper. That would tell you the last time we tagged a story about Reaper. If you just use the search box, then that will guarantee you finding it the last time we mentioned Reaper in the notes. That's and very true, also, actually. if you really want to, do a search on, uh, say, uh, Digital Performer or Ooh. Studio One Studio or One. Sonar. 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 So, hey, we've we've even mentioned now. FL Studio in the past. We have. That's true. Yeah, we look at this one. Have wow. we not? Were, have we not mentioned Master Tracks in the past? Well, that's not really a going concern anymore. But I think <laughs> we were in nostalgia mode and decided to talk about a terrible sequencer that uh, you you won't find now and you won't want to use it. So, like the the probably a middle of the range iPad sequencer blows Master Tracks out of the water. Fantastic stuff. So let's leave the news, head into the imaginatively named other section, and, and let's go with uh, let's go with Sam's tip first. N- n- yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say exactly that. Exactly that. The chain. Okay. Um, this is going to be a complicated description for what's a really simple idea because I need to make it work for the audio podcast. See, for the video version, I could just show it. That's nice and easy. But So we'll go with the, the verbal description first. If you um, do a Google image search for shower curtain rings, ones that are shaped like a C, then you get pictures of these things. And if you get a whole bunch of them and chain them together to make a long chain, you can hang it up in one place and then place a a coiled cable on each one of the hoops. And wow! Wow! It, it's not exactly tidy. It looks a mess, but as long as you follow the rule of only putting one cable on each hook, you can always get the one you want. You can just reach in and pull out. So here we've got a jack cable down at the bottom. We've got some MIDI cables there, and you can hang. I think I've had up to like 15 of these all chained up and hanging on a single hook from a beam in the roof. And yeah. It works beautifully. Sam, we, we need a picture. We, we, we need a picture on the show notes. That is incredible. Okay, I'll, I'll sort that out. <laughs> That's that awesome. Amazing. And I'll tell you what, there's also, if uh, the little C hooks on uh, your thing, I, I've managed to find these S hooks. They're metal S hooks. I think I got them from Ikea, which you could probably do the same thing with. That you, you hang them on the bottom. It would be a bit longer, perhaps. I don't know if it would, because the C kind of really goes all the way around your coiled wire. I think with the S, you'd have the problem of things falling off, especially when you're digging in there to get the others out. The C hooks give a really... I've never had a problem with the wrong cable falling off or anything. But you really uh, have to be careful to put one on each hook. That's that's the key thing to it. uh, How many times can you coil the cable before it doesn't fit into the little gap? Depends on the size of your cable. But in that situation, you can coil your cable, no matter how big it is, and then fasten that with something else and put that something else onto the chain. Ah, okay. Like a little uh, Velcro little tag thing and you can yep. just 
or even a piece of string works wow. quite well as well as long as it, you know a piece of string tied into a loop works for itself. Well, that has blown my mind. Amazing. <laughs> We've been waiting like three weeks to to get that one tip out, and now it's here. It's like oh, <laughs> fantastic. I'm glad to have not disappointed. There we go. I'll get a picture. <laughs> great, great stuff. So from from a helpful tip, let's go back to um. Let, let's have the answers to the quiz from last week's quiz, and then this week's questions. I don't know if Sam has a question yet, so Sam can stop panicking a question here. But we'll start with Sam. Sam's answer from last week. What was the answer, Sam? Well, what was the question. question? The question last week was um, was to do the theremin, and what would Leo, what was what did the maker of the theremin call the theremin? Because he didn't call it a theremin, he called it an etherphone. Fantastic. And Adam. Okay, my question was: What version was Logic at when Apple bought eMagic? Uh, and it, it took me a bit of ferreting around, and I've managed to figure it out. So uh, Apple bought eMagic, uh, or it went through, on the 1st of July, 2002. And the version of Logic then was 5.1.3. There you go. And I've got, I put a link up on the show notes to show to link off to a little news story from Sonic State that shows that. That was when it was released. It was released on the 28th of May 2002, 5.1.3. There you go. Excellent. Thank you very much. And I asked people how many cable terminators are there in an XLR cable, which is, um, and, and the answer is there's actually four. So while there are three pins in an XLR cable, there is a fourth terminator on the actual metal casing of the, um, of the actual chassis to the plug. However, there is no actual convention as to how that terminator should be used, which is kind of fun. Ooh. to think about. For, for an international standard to have no convention how to use the fourth part of it is quite interesting. So there you go. Or at least I think it's interesting. So there you go. That was that question. <laughs> um, I have my question for this week. Uh, my question for this week is based around a piece of hardware I own. So first of all, this is, here is a MIDI Sport 4x4. The, the observer amongst you will notice the MIDI Man monkey on the front of here. And just as a real oddity, while this is a MIDI Man MIDI Sport, for, MIDI Sport 4x4, it does actually have an M Audio sales sticker on the bottom of it, so this was one that was arrived in the middle of the in the, in the middle of the purchase. But that's not my question. My question is, how old is an original MIDI Sport 4x4 USB? When were they first released? And I have a little clue for you. I have the original box. Ah. And on the original box, here's my. I'm trying to aim this so you can see it. Here, here you go. You'll notice that the supported operating systems. Are Windows 98 SE and o OS 8.6 for Mac. Amazing. For Mac. So those, those are the lowest, the oldest uh, supported operating systems as well. So, oh, that's interesting. So that's the USB specific model. Yes, we have the USB specific model. We, we didn't know if there was like a serial based model before that. Or something, but I, I think there the was. But we're going to go with the USB one. We're going to. I want to know how old is a USB MIDI Sport 4x4? What is the oldest possible age it could be? Okay. Sam, Adam, whoever. Adam, go. I've. I was. I've. I've stopped panicking. I've got an idea, but I need a sec. Okay, fine. So my question is, it's another audio. Uh, it's another logic one because uh, I'm a bit of a logic kick me. So uh, back in the time of Logic Audio 4 and 
uh, between four and five, eMagic actually created their own version of ASIO, which was originally created by Steinberg. Ooh. What was it called? What a question! <laughs> this is an ace game. We should do this every week. Yeah, as long as we keep the, the good questions going. Uh, Sam, are, are you ready? Um, I thought I would be, but now I've panicked. <laughs> I was listening to your question. I got a bit distracted there. I should have just could have listened oh, back my, for that. My question was too good. It was too good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna bail on this week's question. No, anyway. no, don't bail, don't bail. <sighs> okay then. I'll, look, look, look in the, look, I'll in the look in the, look in the chat box, in the chat box. Oh, do I, has there been a question suggested here? Oh Fair. yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go with the suggested question by somebody or other. What was Sonar originally called? I think I know the answer to that. But it's my question, and we will have the answer next week. <laughs> Adam oh, and I were talking that. about that one. <laughs> we were. We were. We were. Fantastic. We don't, we, don't, we don't talk about sonar enough, so maybe it might spark a sonar conversation. Apart about the fact, the fact we don't talk, talk about it. Yeah. Well, yeah. and the, the problem is none of us use it, so it's... Uh... Okay, we're done with the other section. There's the quiz questions, answers next week. If you want to, you can obviously... Well, you could send us the right answers if you want to. There are no prizes, but... Oh, here's a cool one, though. If you send us the correct answer... We will we will mention you on the show as having sent oh, yeah, us the correct answers. Yeah. There you go. That's it. The only prize is a mention and the kudos of a mention on the audio podcast. So that's pretty awesome, actually. What a <laughs> what a prize! Yeah, what yeah, a yeah. prize! We should tweet from the audio podcast Twitter those questions and try and get them out there so that okay. people want to do that. We will do that. So, we have, come the to the end. we have come to the end of the other section. We've come into the uh, section of the blunder. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll do this one, yeah, because in the um, in trying to find out the answer to my uh, logic question that I answered this week, I came across a history of Notator and Logic on Tweakheads, which is nice because last week we were talking about Cubase. We had a, an article about the history of Cubase, so this is a nice kind of. Um, fairly detailed look into the history of Notator and Logic. Very nice. Okay, nice. Very nice indeed. And as a bit, as something to give a listen to if you want to, and soon to be released, uh, my final piece of plunder here is that Warp have uh, are soon to release an album by Z Machines, which is an all-robot band. There you go. And I think, is, is that, so is that the album, the album's by Z Machines, and have they got different people into use the robotic band. This particular album is music composed by Square Pusher for the Z Machines band. Okay, because, yeah, in the show notes, there's a YouTube video of uh, of the track that Square Pusher has done on the Z Machines. It's filmed. It looks great, and all the, um, all the Z Machines look amazing. But... I just want to just want to add a little thing in here because at the beginning it says uh, there's a little title card from Square Pusher which says to make music using instrument playing robots fascinates me. People of, often assume that for music to be emotionally powerful, it has to come directly from a human hand. Whereas I disagree with that and enjoy proving these people wrong. This project is an excellent way of exploring that area more. And then you watch the video, and whilst I was watching the video, I was kind of like. Uh, that doesn't really. I, I I don't really agree with his sentiment on it because 
really all all this is all the Z machines are to me are, is a way it's a further abstraction it's a way of of physicalizing a studio process for him for they're basically like the 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 arms and the legs of a MIDI sequencer that are connected up to the instruments. So, um, you know, I think you can get emotionally powerful music that um, that has a, the technology, the technology in the middle. Um, Squarepusher has made loads of it before this. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm I kind of I see it as a bit pointless. Maybe these Z machines. I think they're they're an oddity. They're a a kind of novelty, and they they look amazing and they work amazingly. And I don't want to detract from that. I just kind of think um, I don't think we're going to be seeing robot bands set up in places because you could just not have a band and put speakers up and save all the space and save all the complexity. They're based. They're, they're 21st century automata, aren't they? They, there's been kind of orchestral machines running off of punch cards and stuff for you know a hundred years at least, if not much longer. So yeah. like automatic organs and stuff could be seen as a similar thing. You crank up, yeah. you turn you turn a wheel and it plays a whole tune, you know. But you see, back in uh, 200, 300 years ago, making an uh, an automatic um, musical machine was actually like, oh wow, that is amazing because they didn't have the knowledge, but now you have robots that can build cars. You have r robots, you know, go through all all the way through the manufacturing process to build stuff, and yep. you know, we're getting other types of robot that are coming, like, you know, your little Roombas, your little robot vacuum cleaners, things like that. It's just, I just don't think it's that fascinating. I mean, the, the technical challenge is interesting, and the way that you know, it all works is kind of Fascinating, but the actual finished result is a bit uh, pointless. It, this is my opinion. This is the Adam Yanch opinion, and I, I'm interested to know what Scott thinks. Well, I'm. It's always tricky for me to know how to respond to these things. I guess um, I'm going to take a, a defensive position, which is not to offer any personal opinion, but to <laughs> offer some alternative in, interests as well. So a a a suggestion I could make, if anybody's interested in this space, is to take a look at the work of A.J. Kapoor from CalArts, who has, I don't remember if it's called the Robot Orchestra or the Machine Orchestra, which predates, is like 2010-ish, I think. My memory serves me correctly. It's it's a quite a few years ago. He, he was doing this kind of stuff here, and they were writing music and getting robots to play it back to them. And so if, you, you know, if you're interested in this space, there's, you know, there, there, there is some prior art of quite a few years, which is, mm. you know, probably... Has has a little bit more intentional rigor about its investigation in this space. Sam, do you have any any further thoughts? Yeah, I'd like to like combine that with a counter to Adam saying, why not just set up some speakers and play some music? There is a, such a great difference between hearing a sound come out of an instrument, even if it's an electronic instrument, through an amplifier, compared to hearing music coming out of speakers, having drums that are being hit rather than a recording or a synthesis of drums being hit, having instruments in a space play, being played together whether it's by human hand or by robotics is altogether different to having speakers presenting the same material. I, I, I agree with you there but it's interesting we've got like almost a, another side of a coin here so with the Z machines you've got robots that are physicalizing data 
and making, you know, basically they're like a, a, an a, a D to A converter. Mm -hmm. The analog is that they're actually hitting um, or plucking or making actual physical sound. The flip side to that is your, say, you know, your, your Ableton Live, uh, live DJ type person who actually is creating tracks playing them on the speakers in, in a live venue, but is creating tracks and maybe using something like the live push or the uh, or a Novation uh, matrix-type controller, and is actually uh, it's a human actually creating a kind of um, electronic sound and playing it over the speakers. And I, I don't know. I'm just, I, I, where I'm interested, I'm more interested in robotics, would be for robots to robot instruments and musicians to be able to play things that aren't possible by humans. And the, to be honest, the Square Pusher stuff does do that because Square Pusher, you know, if you've heard Square Pusher, you know it's incredibly complex, very detailed programming. Um, and I reckon if you've got the right players, you could get them to replicate a Square Pusher track. But it would be very hard. Um, but yeah, I think the Square Pusher thing, it makes it more valuable the fact that Square Pusher's music is so complex and incredibly difficult. It would be incredibly difficult to perform live with humans playing instruments. Yeah. So there you go. There we go. I I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna have the final word because I I feel like it. my final observation <laughs> is that if um you know if and anything which distracts the robots from eventually killing us all as they become our robot overlords is probably useful. So don't build a robot in the first place. Ah. You know I mean, if 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 we if we have to choose between strapping electric guitars to them or machine guns, I think the electric guitars is the right choice. They'll still bash you over the head with them. Yeah, no, but that's a lot. Bang. It's gonna take. It's gonna take a lot longer to wipe out mankind if you have to hit it over the head one person at a time with an electric guitar. No, that's not true because an electric guitar doesn't have ammo, so you can't run out of ammo. Also, yeah. haven't you seen Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey? <laughs> that's true. Yes. We, we have clearly made it to the point of the audio podcast where things Excellent. go out of control. I provoked it, and we've made it there. So at that point, we should conclude this week's episode of the audio podcast. This has been show 104, Wintertime Notation. It was an absolute pleasure having Daniel join us to, to chat about the future of notation from Steinberg. We're really excited to hear, hear about that and find out more. I hope you've enjoyed that as well. Don't forget to send us the quiz answers. I have been Scott Hewitt, and I've had a lot of fun again this week, as is always the case. I'm Samuel Freeman. I just made a Bill and Ted reference. I wish I'd made the Bill and Ted reference. I'm Adam Yanch, and I'm, I'm Mr. Logic. That's it. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.